Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about another perspective on the UAW strikes against the Detroit automakers. We're going to hear from auto suppliers, the ones who make the parts that go into our vehicles. They're affected by the work stoppages. We're going to hear how they're affected, how they were doing before the strikes, and what they expect to happen when all of this ends. We are going into week three of the United Auto Workers strike against Stellantis, Ford, and General Motors, the three Detroit automakers. And as of yet, there's really no sign of them slowing down. In fact, this work stoppage may just be heating up. That's in part because on Friday, the UAW expanded its strikes to 7,000 more workers in Illinois and Michigan, leaving the total at 25,000 striking members, or about 17% of their total union membership. These latest strikes were particularly significant. The UAW has structured walkouts, so companies keep making pickup trucks and SUVs, which are the top-selling vehicles. These latest strikes against General Motors and Ford specifically targeted crossover SUVs, which are big money makers. So they are absolutely now trying to take it to the heart of the money-making vehicles for the automakers. Amid these latest walkouts and all the rest, the two perspectives that get covered the most, of course, are those of union members and of management at each auto company. And we have been doing our best here to bring all of those perspectives to you on Detroit Today. But those are not the only people who are directly impacted by these strikes. Not often included in the conversation are auto suppliers, the businesses that produce and distribute the parts that get installed in the cars and trucks that are assembled by auto workers. And of course, you know that that industry is also much more complicated than the way I just described it. There are parts makers who supply other parts makers who supply other parts makers who supply the Detroit automakers. And so there is an incredible ripple effect that is possible and starting to unfold really when the work at the Detroit automakers is brought to a halt. Uh, these folks are starting to feel the heat from these strikes. About 75% of part makers expect to have to lay off workers if the UAW strikes last two more weeks, according to one supplier group. And last Monday, a trade group that represents auto suppliers reached out to the White House requesting aid for smaller suppliers that make revenue of less than $200 million a year. So, what do things look like on the ground for these auto suppliers? How were they doing before the strikes took place? Do they support UAW workers in their quest for better pay and benefits and other work conditions from the Detroit automakers? And what's the best case scenario for them? Is it a quick end to the strikes or is it that one side or the other is victorious in this work stoppage. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, talking about what's happening with auto suppliers, uh, what effect is uh, unfolding in their businesses because of the UAW strikes. We've got two great guests with us to talk about this 
supplier side of the auto strikes. Daniel Rustman is an attorney and shareholder at the Butzel Long Law Firm. He's also the co-chair of his firm's automotive section. Daniel, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. I'm very happy to be here yes. with you today. It's great to have you here in studio. Also with us is Lori Harbour. She is the president and CEO of Harbor Results, which is a consulting firm in Southfield that collaborates with auto suppliers. Lori, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. So before we get into each of your perspectives on the strike, uh, let's just set some context. Daniel, you're an attorney and a co-chair for the automotive section of your law firm. Let's talk a little about what that means, what does your work look like, and how do you interact with auto suppliers uh, day-to-day? Thank you, Stephen. Yes, my law firm butts along. We represent suppliers. We've been, been in Detroit for about 150 years, and we've been, we used to represent what are called original equipment manufacturers, the OEMs. OEMs. So in about the last 15 years, we made a decision. We're gonna, we mainly were representing suppliers, and we decided to exclusively represent suppliers. So we approached the, the business from the position of the suppliers. We represent suppliers in their negotiations with each other, in their dealings with their customers, who are the car makers, the OEMs. And uh, we handle contracts, we handle disputes, uh, very much connected to the supplier community. Yeah, and, and as I said in the open, uh, this is a complicated world. It's not just about people who work directly with the Detroit automakers and send them parts. The suppliers are a world into their own and have lots of different relationships. And as I said, there are suppliers who supply suppliers who supply suppliers. <laughs> Very true. And we call that in the industry the tiered the tiers, system. Right. <laughs> so we have the tier ones supplied to the OEMs, to the to the car makers, and then the tier twos supply to the tier ones, the tier three, and on down the chain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lori, uh, tell us a little about Harbor Results and how you interact with or facilitate the work for auto suppliers. Sure, thank you. Um, We're a small consulting firm. We do operations and strategic uh, consulting, but we also gather annual benchmarking data from over 600 manufacturing companies, typically tier two and tier threes, right? So, you know, the mom and pops, the family business, the 300 million, you know, PE owned type of companies. 90 some percent of the data we collect is automotive industry because it's, you know, sort of the 800 pound gorilla in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And we also consult with them. So we're not only gathering data, but we're doing consulting directly for these suppliers. And frankly, a lot of support right now and just kind of being ready to manage sort of hunkering down for for what is coming or what has already come and what is more to come likely. Okay. Um, So, Daniel, I want to start here with you. One of your clients directly supplies the Stellantis Assembly Center in Toledo, Ohio, which is one of the plants that the UAW has decided to strike first. Let's start there. Talk about how your clients are navigating that strike, but also give us a sense of how their world was doing before this, what, what kind of shape were they in to be able to have to navigate all this? Thank you, Stephen. Yes, it's true. It's good to go back a little bit in history. Of course, that we all know about the pandemic. Following that, there's just been one incident after another that's in, that have impacted the industry, impacted the suppliers. Um, 
the ice storm in Texas, the hurricanes that have occurred, mm-hmm. the supply chain disruptions, and, and of course the inflation that the whole country's experienced, the whole world's really experienced in the last year or two, has really had a significant impact on the suppliers. The way the industry typically works are that the contracts are somewhat loaded towards the automakers. They're, I would, shouldn't, wouldn't even say somewhat, they're heavily loaded. <laughs> they have the leverage and they have the contracts that, that say, you have to supply us at a fixed price for a long period of time. As the supplier's costs go up, then their margin goes down and eventually they get to the point where they're suffering and maybe even in many instances losing money. So they approach the customers and they ask for relief and because the contracts are favored, favorable towards the customers, they don't always get the relief. So that's the backdrop. Suppliers now for the last two or three years, and it's true for almost all levels of supplier. It's not just the small suppliers, it's the small and the large suppliers uh, have been really uh, hit by the impact of all these events that have come in such quick succession. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and a lot of times I think we don't think of it that way, right? A natural disaster happens in Texas, for instance. It, it's not obvious to us that that has an effect on the entire chain of supply that affects all of the automakers and the suppliers. Yes, very true. I mean, the petrochemical industry was located in that area, and so it really had an impact on plastics and different components. And, and every part has a number of different components. So you have an impact on any particular part, it ripples up through the supply chain. Ultimately, it causes an increase in costs. So yeah. that's the backdrop. And the suppliers have been losing money. They've been hurting. They've been going back and forth. I have to say I'm somewhat biased towards the suppliers because that's my client <laughs> of base. Of course, sure. Um, but you know, the, the car makers, the OEMs, are able to raise the prices to their consumers, and that's been happening. But the suppliers aren't always able to raise their prices to the customer because there's a it's they're largely at their mercy in terms of what they can receive or not. So that's the backdrop. Now the strike comes along, and and as you mentioned, I do have clients that supply directly to the struck plants, to the Toledo assembly, to the Michigan assembly, um, to the GM plant in Wentzville. And so if, if you, it depends on the, your size as a supplier, but if, if you're heavily dependent on supplying to a particular plant, and if you have a number of factories, if your factories are supplying directly to that plant, once it stops production, very soon after your production it happens have to quick. stop. Yes. And it's because the, the, the industry is based on a just-in-time model. In other words, the parts are sequenced, so there's not very much inventory, there's not very much storage capacity. The parts go right from the supplier into the car plant, right into the car. So is when the car plant stops production, if your lines are dependent on supplying to the lines that are shut down, your lines stop very quickly. And that's been happening. So if you're unlucky enough to be a supplier that's, that has plants supplying to the struck plant, for the, in, for the most part, you're stopped now. Yeah, yeah. And, and talk about breaking points, I guess, then. A temporary stoppage, as you say, has almost an immediate effect. How long can your clients weather that before it does you know, serious or permanent damage to their businesses. It's very dicey. I mean, you mentioned earlier, what's what's the question? And I think from the perspective of the, the suppliers, they want the strike to end as soon as possible. I mean, I don't, I think they're mostly agnostic in terms of who wins or loses, how it comes out, but they need it to end. They need production to start 
so that they can restart their production, re-engage their employees, because it's, you know, we've heard, oh, if this keeps going on, people will have to start laying off employees down the line. Well, I'm, I can say that it's already happening. Um, if number of these plants that are supplying directly to the struck plants already have laid off employees, hundreds of them. And the big concern is, well, are we going to be able to get these employees back? They're laid off on a temporary basis, but they're hourly workers, and they well could go find other employment. It could, it's a tight labor market. It could be difficult to get them back. And really, one of the big concerns is, okay, we've stopped production. We're not having income coming in. We have all these costs to maintain our plan and, and keep uh, uh, keep it going as well as we can. Yeah. And what's going to happen is as soon as the strike ends, obviously they want it to end, but as soon as it ends, the car makers will want to turn back on the faucet immediately. So immediately. it'll go from being a shutdown to being a fire hose, and that's what they want. So we've advised people to provide notice to say, listen, we need some ramp up time before we can restart production. We can only store so many parts. You know that it's that that's the way the system is set up. We're not sure we can get the employees back right away. We are not sure that we can get all the parts coming from our sub suppliers right away. In some instances, there's processes that need to be restarted. So um, we need some time to get going. The, the customers, the car makers are, you know, push back on that. They yeah. say, well, every day that goes by that we're not making cars costs us millions of dollars, so you need to be ready to come back. So there's this great tension bet- between the suppliers and the car makers, as there often is. Um, and it, and a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety over how long is it going to go, and when it ends, how is it going to restart? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, Lori, um, how are the auto suppliers that you work with uh, weathering all of this? How are they doing before all of this started? And uh, what are things going to be like for them if this goes on for, for too long? Yeah, well, I, I certainly echo a lot of what was just discussed. I mean, the the challenge, my, my customer base tends to be more of that tier two and tier three. And so as you go further down the layers, it's sort of the trouble sort of grows exponentially, right? Um, not, not implying the tier ones don't have major challenges, but they also have multiple plants and multiple customers, and they tend to be global, and some of them are publicly traded. Still some trouble in that space. But as I go down to the tier twos that are the 50 and $100 million companies that are critical part suppliers to tier ones, you know, they all the things we talked about, you know, down volume in automotive, pandemic, labor challenges, price increases, so on and so on. All that federal funding they got is now gone. It's just dissipated. They've spent that on, you know, those those three years of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so now you look at the challenges that are facing them by being shut down and having to lay people off. Uh, you know, financially, they're not, they they were not strong going into 2023. We saw a 50% increase in troubled companies from 21 to 22. Mm-hmm. And about a third of the population of our 600 companies are unbankable. And the banks won't even support them. Wow. Too much debt and no profitability. So now you add in a strike where they only, they, even though they might make for multiple companies, if they just lose 20% of their volume in a three-week, four-week, six-week period of time of a strike, it could tip them into you know, insolvency. And so 
it's a huge challenge. And, and, and to the point of, you know, they turn the spigot on and we go back to production and the OEMs are like, let's go build all these Jeeps again or whatever, you know, Broncos, wherever those vehicles are. Um, the problem here is that they haven't been, you know, billing customers for the mm. last, you know, three weeks, six weeks, however long it lasts. So to turn the spigot on and buy material, they just won't have the cash. And so, and, and you, that tier one can't make the part if that tier two doesn't supply him his parts and so on and so on. It's that That's chain right. yeah. you were both talking about. Yeah. Laurie, I, I also want to give you a chance to talk a little more uh, about this tier two, tier three uh, business that exists in our community in in large numbers. I can remember riding around Detroit as a kid in the 70s and 80s and seeing those businesses all over all over uh, all over Detroit and I remember asking I remember the first time I asked what was a tool and die uh, maker? Like uh, I would see that on signs all over Detroit and not understand what it what it meant. Um, but in so many instances, these are very small businesses. And you used the term mom and pop uh, in your in your opening comments. But but I want to give you a chance to talk about what that looks like. These are not wealthy big businesses by any stretch of the imagination. In some cases, they really are quite small and they depend on a, a regular cash flow. And if they don't have it, they, they are in a lot of trouble. That That's absolutely correct. I mean, if you're, you know, just by sheer magnitude, if there's a thousand tier ones, there's, you know, 50,000 tier twos and tier threes. And the tool and die makers are even in a tier three space that's even further down the line. Mm -hmm. And we actually have lost to bankruptcy some very significant shops here in in i'm in, sitting in warren right now in the warren area and in canada over the last 24 months just because of the strife in the industry and and these strikes one thing people are not talking about is these strikes are also going to cause delayed programs so whether that's a production supplier or, or a tool launch and so you know there are tens of thousands of these small shops they could be 10-man shops they could be 100-man shops and they're all run differently and some are run really well and some are third and fourth generation companies that may not have the strongest leadership skills at the top of the house. And so how they manage their cash and the choices they make strategically are difficult. Some of them have 80% of their business with one customer. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it's a huge challenge to deal with and, and especially on the heels of the pandemic, right? And the, the labor situation is probably the most difficult for them because as everybody raised wage rates in the last two years, you know, if they're close to a tier one supplier, that tier one is raising wage rates to a rate that they could never afford as a small mom and pop shop. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly trying to get labor in their building and they can't afford the levels of automation that some others see. And so we're very concerned that in the next, you know, depending on how long this takes, this strike, you could see a third of the population really in bank trouble, which is not great because the banks aren't that healthy either, right, right? Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Daniel Rustman of Bustle Long and Lori Harbor of Harbor Results, Inc. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Uh, we've got two great guests with us already uh, talking about this issue. Daniel Rustman is an attorney and shareholder at the Butzel Long Law Firm. He's also the co-chair of their automotive section. Lori Harbour is the president and CEO of Harbour Results, Inc., which is a consulting firm in Southfield that collaborates with auto suppliers. Uh, before we get to our uh, listeners on the phone, uh, Daniel, you and I, uh, during the break, were talking about a report that uh, is coming out soon that takes a look at the impact of this strike on the industry and, of, and, and on suppliers. The numbers you're talking about here are absolutely staggering. It is staggering, Stephen. So the company, Anderson Economic Group, uh, published a widely cited uh, study couple weeks ago going into the strike of what they projected the economic impact to be. And I understand that they're coming out today with a new study. An advanced copy was shared with me. And they determined that the impact of the strike to date through September 29th overall at $3.95 billion. Wow. And the methodology is explained in the report, but basically it's, you know, loss of wages, loss of profits, loss you know, the impact to, to the economy, 3.95 billion. But interestingly, in this particular study now, they've broken out what they determined to be the impact on suppliers, suppliers specifically, and they've determined, as stated in their study, that the impact is $1.29 billion on the supplier community. It's, wow. it's staggering. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine, again, how anybody who's running a business could ever have prepared for anything like that, but but then certainly when it happens, uh, how they how they manage it. Um, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go to Peter in Detroit. Peter, you're up first today. Oh, good morning, Stephen, and good morning to your guests. I had uh, something that uh, the gentleman said raises concern for me. Is that you know the UAW was formed because workers were at the mercy of uh, the auto companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of your guests mentioned that suppliers in all tiers are at the mercy of the auto companies as well. And I was thinking, within the law, is there some way that they could band together, not a union, an association of some sort? Uh, they can't collude on prices and all that. That's illegal. But is there some way that they could get together and and uh, put up a united front and say, "Hey, look, we're not we're not being treated fairly by you. We need we need better contracts." Is that is that allowed, uh, Peter? It's a great question, and I love the analogy to, of course, the the formation of the UAW and other unions because uh, workers had the same problem with with companies. Um, Daniel, I'll start with you. What's what's the answer to to Peter's question here about? Cooperation, obviously, uh, colluding would not be okay. Uh, but the kind of cooperation that could give them more leverage over over the automakers. No, it's a very good question, but it's correct that the antitrust laws would prohibit real uh, collaboration or cooperation of the type that would give a, you know would maybe uh, tilt the economic balance. However, there are ways that they do come together. And one, you mentioned early at the beginning of the show, Stephen, the Motor Equipment Manufacturers Association is a trade association um, composed of suppliers. I forget their current membership, but it's approximately 700 companies. Um, and so they they participate and they uh, engage in lobbying at, the, at a national level. You mentioned uh, one of the current moves is to um, 
lobby the administration or request the administration provide assistance to suppliers, to small suppliers, because they're the ones that are going to be uh, have the most difficulty absorbing the impact of this strike. Yeah. So companies under 200 million sales, and, and the, re- the relief they're requesting is loans, financial assistance, things to keep the suppliers afloat. But they can't really band together to gain economic uh, influence over the OEMs, but they can engage in activities that help sh- share information, you know, as long as it doesn't violate the antitrust laws. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lori, same same question to you. Uh, and I want to add to that, in the future, um, you know, the, the, the industry is changing so much, and that's going to affect suppliers as well. Uh, is, there, is there a need for suppliers to rethink the way this whole – thing works, uh, the way the whole industry is structured uh, in order to to be able to survive as things get tighter, uh, I think almost certainly at the at the automaker level. Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough challenge, right? And that that I agree um, with Daniel. I mean, there's really not much you can do short of working through your manufacturing associations, right? The, the groups you talked about at the top of the show that I, I too was involved with those groups and talking to the White House about funding and about those aspects of things, but you really just can't, it's very difficult to influence, again, if you're a tier two or tier three, influence up a couple levels all the way to the OEM. And, you know, the, there's a lot of talk through the strike about how much money the companies are making and, and you know, why they're still sourcing things to LCC regions and one, you know, one of the biggest industries that is decimated by LCC is the tooling industry you brought mm-hmm. up before. Mm-hmm. We buy a lot of tools in China and we're not choosing to make them here. And we've worked hard to influence the OEMs about the value of, you know, building these companies up here and being able to have them around long term to fix their tools and, and make engineering changes. But you just can't, you know, they're they're going by cost structures. And yes, they're making a lot of money, but what they don't talk a lot about in this union strife is the, you know, $11 billion a year General Motors is invested for 10 years running to, to transition to electric vehicles. You know, these are not, the profits are not just pouring into everybody's pockets. They're, they're about reinvestment and being able to be the company that's still standing 20, 30, 40 years from now with jobs for UAW workers. So, you know, all of that just rolls downhill and there's just no great way. I mean, we counsel clients all the time about what kind of role they need to play in, in being strong and being clear about what you're willing to take and not willing to take. And agreements are critical and companies like Daniel's company are working regularly with suppliers to help them get those T's and C's correct. But a lot of those mom and pop shops I mentioned don't have the intestinal fortitude Hmm. to say no to their customer and to pass on price increases. They're just not strong enough because they're afraid they'll if they push the bubble, they'll they'll lose them. Right. And and that's because they're financially weak, so they can't push it too hard. So that's the challenge. And and we just have to work to influence. And and that's why the, the associations are so critically important. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, we've got a question uh, from Twitter that I want to put to both of you as well. Michael uh, says what he's seen is that the suppliers have historically been financially squeezed by the OEMs. Uh, he wonders if you guys have any opinion about if the UAW winning might lead to further supplier squeeze to offset any gains that the UAW might make in the strike. Uh, Lori, I'll, I'll start with you this time. Um, I mean, it's it's absolutely going to continue to put pressure on on um, companies to recoup profitability and to pass on price increases. Right. The, the biggest challenge right now is the labor costs and being able to get that. Most of my clients have been very successful through the pandemic to pass on price increases for material, but they have not gone after inflationary price increases as they should, you know. Daniel mentioned this, the OEMs get a, you know, they pass on their cost increases. Let's say the UAW increases in wages, they'll pass that on. Vehicles will become even more expensive. Mm -hmm. But as I go down each tier, it becomes more challenging to pass on those particular price increases. And so these companies will be, I do think you're going to see squeeze, you're going to lose shops by the fact that they're only not strong enough financially and they won't make it. There'll be more consolidation, more roll up, things of that nature in the tier two and the tier three supply base. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, uh, same question to you, but but also, again, is there a is there a bigger restructuring that I guess we're headed for in the supplier uh, community, given all of the things that are about to change pretty quickly in, in the industry? And I think the strike is just a kind of a sign of all of that. Yes, Stephen. I mean, I think it's a very astute question by, by the caller because there's no question that the OEMs, the car makers, pass down the costs as much as they can and they squeeze the supply base. That's where I've seen it. I mean, that's the position that I'm in, so I'm uh, sensitive to it. But they have the even the large suppliers have very little leverage against the car makers to push back uh, and to try to get cost recovery. So yes, maybe they've received some cost recovery in inflation for raw materials, but the car makers are very adamant. They don't provide relief for general inflation, for labor increases, and it leaves the suppliers pinched. So maybe the larger, the tier one suppliers may have to provide relief downstream to their suppliers because they can't risk having them go out of business. They, they try to prop them up as best they can. They will often, some relief. It's a negotiation up and down the supply chain, but they find themselves sandwiched. Mm -hmm. Then they can't recover it from the OEMs. And the OEMs come after them in different ways, too. It's not just pricing. It's also through warranty. Um, it's the, deck, the deck is stacked <laughs> in, in, from where I sit against the supplier. So the, the, if there's a warranty problem, if there's an issue, the car makers typically try to recover as much as they can from the suppliers, and they push it down, even if it many times from where I sit is was the fault of the car maker. Maybe the specification wasn't correct or something, yeah. but they'll tr say well, it's your fault. So they're, they're definitely doing this. I mean, we thought back in the bankruptcies that maybe the model would change, that maybe people would become more collaborative and, and approach it more of a partnership. Um, but it, I, it hasn't changed like we hoped. And in fact, I, in recent years, the terms are getting more rigorous, more difficult, more stacking of the deck um, against the suppliers. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, uh, Daniel Russman and uh, Laurie Harbour. Really great to have both of you here to talk about the supplier side of all the things that we're seeing with the strike here in the with the UAW and the automakers. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. The assistant producer for our podcast is Maddie Boyer. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.